0: Hello, I'm Paul Tyler and welcome to Spoiler, the show which reviews movies, books and TV shows in their entirety. This week we're watching the 1988 Bruce Willis action movie Die Hard. And just another final warning, we will be talking about the whole of the plot. We will ruin it for you. So if you've not already seen Die Hard, go away, watch it now, then come back to us afterwards. Have they gone? Right, on with the show. It's the most wonderful time of the year. A scroll through my Facebook timeline on Christmas Eve would go something like this. I'll be posting pictures of whatever concoction we're leaving Santa and the reindeers. But my friends' traditions differ. Some read Dickens. Some are young, free and single, so they drink themselves silly and post selfies with comedy antlers on their noggins. Others enjoy watching a traditional Christmas film. White Christmas. It's a wonderful life. Merry Christmas Elf. I know him. My personal favourite, the National Lampoon's Christmas Vacation. Oh dear. Did I break wind? And of course, die hard.
1: It's the most wonderful.
0: I don't know about you, but nothing says the season of goodwill like terrorists taking hostages from a large corporation.
1: Who said we were terrorists?
0: While a maverick cop runs around barefoot, sometimes with, sometimes without a vest, shooting the bad guys in the kneecaps. Who are you then? Just a fly in the ointment, Hans. The
2: monkey in the wrench.
0: The pain in the ass. And what spoiler introduction would be complete without quoting Roger Ebert? who seems to be on his own in poo-pooing Die Hard at the time of release. He highlights the uselessness of the deputy police chief character, Dwayne T. Robinson, played by the brilliant Paul Gleason. This is deputy chief of police Dwayne T. Robinson, and I am in charge of this situation. Ebert claimed that all by himself, he successfully undermines the last half of the movie. Well, I got some bad news for you, Dwayne. From up here, it doesn't look like you're in charge of jack shit. Mark Kermode, was amongst the many critics praising Die Hard, claiming it was cowboys and Indians in the towering inferno. I was always kind of partial to Roy Rogers, actually. Which, as I'm sure the good doctor was aware, is what the creators were aiming for, basing the film on a 1979 novel by Roderick Thorpe, Nothing Lasts Forever, a thriller about German terrorists taking over a Los Angeles office block after watching the McQueen and Newman disaster epic. I promise I'll never even think
1: about going up in a tall building again.
0: In a time of shaky cam, non-stop action movies, is Die Hard still an edge-of-the-seat watch? Is it possible that Bruce Willis looks older in this film than any of its sequels? And how about Alan Rickman? Well, you know that already. And you're right.
2: When Alexander saw the breadth of his domain, he wept, for there were no more worlds to conquer. He's
0: incredible. Benefits of a classical education.
1: Oh, the weather
0: outside is oh, and a Christmas film, we don't even need to discuss it. Of course it's not. It's just a film that takes place at Christmas.
1: Now I have a machine gun. Oh, ho, ho,
0: ho. Now later in the show, we'll be taking a look at the art of the movie sequel, but first. Uh, joining us here in the first of series five of, uh, well, no, le- all right, let's get this out of the way, shall we? The first in series of the British Podcast Award nominated, a spoiler. Woo! Hey, come on! <laughs> <laughs> Are the very yippee Rachel Burnett and Woo! the Kaye k- Andy Gordon <laughs> Hello! And we'll leave that there, I think. <laughs> Um, so, uh, right, let's just get this out of the way, shall we? Everyone got the posh clothes at the dry cleaners? Hell yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, and so, I mean, I, I, we should point this out to the listener, but we have been nominated for a British Podcast Award in the review category, uh, up against some tough competition, but we've already batted some very, very tough competition out of the park. So we are absolutely thrilled. Um, we would thank the listener, but at this point, it didn't have anything to do with them. We were, <laughs> we, you know, I'm not going to patronise them. It's pointless. They are isn't ace. They? Yeah. Of course. thank you very much Um, so yes thank you very much it it raises our status and it makes us uh, very very proud uh, to be here and doing what we're doing Um, so thank you especially for listening Uh, now back to the uh, the task at hand Die Hard, Rachel you're not (laughs) one of these lunatics that watch this film at Christmas are you?
1: I have a strange sort of confession I think I've watched Die Hard as one film in the past and I've watched it again and I think it's another film it's really odd.
0: You're not thinking of uh, Die Hard 2, are you? No. That's, no. I, se- I, I
1: love Die Hard with a Vengeance. That's my favourite Well, I, I um, set
0: out watching this thinking it was about aeroplanes. Oh, no. Uh, and he was on an aeroplane nice at the too. beginning. And then I got very confused.
1: <laughs> <laughs> well, see, the thing is when, uh, so 1988, so um, 11 years old, didn't start watching this until I was a little bit older. And then you watch it in bits because you see it on TV, you watch the middle, then you mm-hmm. watch a yeah, bit of the beginning, yeah. then a bit of the end. And then, think, yeah. then you kind of patch it all together and go, that's what Die Hard is. It's Ace. And then you sit and you watch it with a critical eye, <laughs> and you go, "Hmm, okay, that's not the film I thought it was." It starts completely differently how I th- than I thought it started, and it starts much slower than I thought it started as well. Boy, is it slow! My goodness me, at the start I was like, "Ooh." I don't know if I've even watched this film. What is this? And I thought I'd like rented the wrong thing from... Um, yes, I rented it what? <laughs> from <laughs> iTunes. Couldn't find my copy uh, you, anywhere. I thought you
0: were about to say Blockbuster.
1: Oh. <laughs> <laughs> no, there is a blast from the past. But um, no, it was really... It was quite unsettling because it felt like I'd, I was watching a completely new and different movie.
0: Okay, well, we're... we're, we're Tease this out a little bit longer, and we'll find out your, your <laughs> reaction to that. And you a Bruce Willis fan?
2: I quite like him actually. He's, uh, I think, he's okay in this. Uh, I don't think it's an amazing performance, but I think he was new to the action hero thing in in this, which uh, you've got to remember. He was just he was mainly known for sort of tv comedy roles and things like this before and i know that he was uh after this he was nominated for several razzies for films after this but i think
0: hang on what are the razzies
2: it's like the it's like the oscars but for the worst things ah the, uh, right okay yeah i think uh, I've, is, have it, i have i
0: seen sandra bullock being yes. very gracious at the razzies yeah, yeah, he, yeah she yeah, went well, to collect it herself, yeah, yeah which right,
2: is yeah. great but i think i'm not really keen on the razzies i think it's a little bit mean-spirited but I think overall, Bruce Willis' career, he has done some some really good things. I think he's quite funny in Death Becomes Her and when he uh, guested in Friends as well. I think he's quite funny. And I think he's great when he's uh, in Wes Anderson's Moonrise Kingdom as well. I think that's a very understated and uh, a really clever piece of casting, Bruce Willis, there. But I think in, in here, he's, he's serviceable. He does, He does a decent action hero role. I just wanted to, to pick up on the, the Christmas thing while we're at it. And yeah, say, I mean, let's, uh, let's get it out of the way, shall we? Uh, it? the, it's not is it? so we all agree with that. That's right, yeah? Well, <laughs> p- people people get irate about this online. They, they've really like, turned to each other. And as far as I'm concerned, is it a Christmas film? It is if you watch it at Christmas. <laughs> if it's part of your Christmas, that's fair enough. I mean, I would say if The Wizard of Oz is part of your Christmas, which it is for many people, it's a Christmas film, even though it's not really. It doesn't make any reference to Christmas, but it fits in very well with that kind of... Uh, Christmas Day viewing, uh, and I think it's obviously played up a little bit in Die Hard as well. I mean, it's not an overly Christmas film, but in the soundtrack, there's lad It Snow, Let It Snow, Let It Snow. Mm. There's Winter Wonderland, you know. Mm. Uh, his wife's called Holly. Yeah. Lots of links I'm there. Well <laughs> done. That
0: is great. That is great. I mean, I've, it's a funny thing because when I mean we're, we're recording this in in springtime, but. It was still quite cheering to, to hear "Let It Snow, Let It Snow." Yeah. Mm. I, I, I played. I let the credits run, and I was really enjoying
1: it. <laughs> it's nice, isn't it? It is. It is a Christmas film because what? it is a Christmas film because there are three lines. I've written them down. Um, <laughs> so, well, it's not a line that's Wait, spoken, but just remember the have...
2: Ofcom license, just no, in case one of the lines There's is no that swearing. line. <laughs> it's
1: very festive, isn't it? So, the chap who's who's dead on the chair. Has now I have a machine gun ho ho ho. So we have a Santa reference. Um, It's Christmas, Theo. It's the time of miracles, Um, and um, if this is their idea of Christmas, I got to be here for New Year's. That's Mm. also in there as well. And but somebody said I think it was on something called Movie Pilot. And that I'm going to quote them, so I hope they don't mind me doing this. But they said basically the entire conflict is about McLean saving his marriage in time for Christmas morning. Holly invites him to an office Christmas party, this leading to the terrorists. And the reason John's in LA is to see his cri- kids for Christmas. So this you know, it's Christmassy. It needs a Christmas background.
2: I think that quite a good kind of analogy here is is that on the soundtrack there one of the songs is Christmas in Hollis by Run the MC. Oh yeah. <laughs> now this is this is a Christmas song which isn't on all the Christmas compilations and things like that. And yeah, 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 exactly. Does that not reflect Die Hard? I mean, it's not necessarily mm-hmm. the first thing you would think of. It's it's the outside choice. It's like every Christmas I make my own Christmas playlist and it's got lots of things that aren't on the normal Christmas compilations that you get. And Die Hard feels a bit like that in, in Christmas films. Mm-hmm. It's it's kind of an outsider, but it, I think it belongs in there. Yeah. Because it, it's there's enough Christmas in it. I mean, it's not a Christmas film, it's a film set at Christmas, but if it's part of your Christmas, then it's a Christmas film. Yeah. Well, then you need to, you should have a look look at yourself, but... (laughs) Um.
0: I, I think we should leave. We should leave this because we could be. I mean, you know, how normally I'm quite swayed, and I think you've made a really good argument, Rachel. You know, normally I would, I would, I would change my mind because I'm happy to change my mind. All sane people, unlike the leaders of the of the free world, are happy <laughs> to change their mind, and you know that, that shows a, a, a good evolution. But I'm not going to on this. So we'll we'll <laughs> we'll, we'll move we'll move we'll move it along. So, I, Rachel, when we did the opening bit there, I'm guessing that you've seen it in bits and bats over the years, mm. and you've watched it as a whole. Mm. It had a. Turgid opening, mm. Um and I'm, I don't know. By the sound of things, oh, this is this is going to go a bit sour because I think you, I, by the sounds of it, there, I think you're a bit disappointed by watching it as a whole.
1: Well, not so much disappointed, just surprised. Mm-hmm. I think I didn't realise how cliche-ridden it was. How the racial stereotypes were rife. I mean, it's very typical of '80s films. You have the black limo driver, and he's very sort of, you know, he's a hip cat and all this, and it's like, oh my god, how many more stereotypes are we going to cling to here? But it was very much the 80s, that's that's what they did. And some of the acting, oh my God, Alan Rickman notwithstanding, but um, it just felt like Bruce Willis, um, Bonnie Bedelia and Alan Rickman were just in orbit around these people that were just the most chronic actors. Yes, Paul Gleason, I'm going to look at you as well. <laughs> and um, and yeah. Al, oh my God, Al, those lines. I don't know if it was writing <laughs> or what, but I was like, How can you even speak it? Oh, my God. So, yeah, I was a little bit surprised. Not to say I didn't enjoy it, though. Mm -hmm. This is the thing. You watch it going, oh, that's chronic. Oh, my God, the acting. Well, that wouldn't happen. And you do all of this. But in the end, you come out going, I really enjoyed that.
0: Yeah, I'm kind of with you there. Mm. It's, It's one of these things where I've had this feeling before, and I think I've watched this probably about two or three years ago, but not all of it because, you know, I don't watch films in holes. And... I remember at that point thinking, 20 minutes has gone and nothing has happened. But actually, I do remember being quite refreshed by that and thinking, well, you know, I like to take a, a ridiculous stance on things and thinking, well, no, this is this is it. Because, you know, we rely too much on having, I don't know, some innocuous answer. You look at those Mission Impossible films and you're always, you're on the back end of their last mission and they're, they're winning before they, they come round to the, the the next mission and the one where they get caught out. Um and so you have to have action straight away. to do, and You just think, well, is this the, the, the age we're living in now where you need stimulation as soon as you walk in? Or some, can something lead up to something? Or something momentous and something huge? And then even when it, it does in this, it's just a few gunshots in the air, doesn't it? It's not... It's not you know, mm. as 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 awesome as it is. However, I think, you know, perhaps before this film, I don't know, maybe, you know, this is maybe, I think this film is a stepping stone film into where we are now. And, you know, I, I, you know, you, you can say that's either either good or bad. Um, I
2: actually really like it, though. I, I like the fact that we do have that slower beginning because it gives us time to to know where you are with the characters. Mm-hmm. You remember the last action film we talked about was Mad Max Fury Road, and I really didn't like the way, that, that, like most action films now, just punches you in the face straight away (laughs) with like a mad action scene. And that just kept going and going for half an hour. And I was like, right, slow down. Why do I care about what's going to happen to any of these characters? I mean, in this, as Rachel says, some, some of the characters are a bit thin and there's a, I don't care a great deal about what's going to happen to them outside of just not wanting anyone to get killed. But it does give me some basis to to, to care a little bit. It shows me that there's this strained marriage and uh, it humanizes the characters to an extent before... It throws them into the maelstrom of the action, and that's something to me in action films, which is is really key in enjoying it. The name, I was just I was just been thinking about the name. We've mentioned it a few times. Die Hard. It's, I mean, it's very.
0: it's I think they came up with a name before they came up with anything else, wasn't it? It was very much what can we stick on the on the front of a, a video cassette, you know, in a rental shop in the. Uh, yeah. down at your local garage because they were in the garages back then <laughs> and it die hard it's, it is very very much that but I, I don't think it really suits the film at
2: all really. No, well I, I think the same thing they're probably the same with the tagline because the tagline for this was 12 terrorists, 1 cop the odds are against John McLean that's just the way he likes it. <laughs> I was thinking, that is not the way he likes no. it. He's no. obviously a man who's been drawn into this against his will. <laughs> at any <laughs> point not. in the film, you could say, just want to be at home in your slippers, <laughs> like having a, a sherry. He would say, yeah, yeah. Absolutely. It's, he's not in... I mean, I know he wisecracks his way through it a little bit, but... That's just his way of getting through it. He's not enjoying this. <laughs> not at all. Mm. And, and again, it's a product of his time in the, uh,
0: the I think you probably mentioned this earlier a bit, Andy, I think, in the swearing. I mean, I, I noticed just how much swearing there was in this. Yeah. And not, not necessarily needed or, you know, in, in, intrinsic with the, you know, I mean, like, all right, look, we've said the dialogue and the plot and the, <laughs> and the script <laughs> um well you know all could perhaps do with uh, a good old Titan. could go <laughs> go through, go, through, go around once more in the edit please guys um but i, I did i think I, I made a notice of that because i of that just because it, i i did sort of see that it, i don't know i suppose now we're coming full circle again now with what's that film uh, where they've just an the action film where they've just had lots of swearing in it deadpool that's it mm. deadpool and people say oh, you know how, how refreshing that is to have a lot of swearing in a a superhero franchise but I don't know he's, he doesn't he doesn't
2: bring it along for me yeah. I don't really I didn't really notice really so much oh. with the swearing that it was uh, I know that there was like there was a t, there were, I think there's been several TV edits of Die Hard where they take out the swearing or they They. Uh, I mean obviously one of the most famous lines in it mm-hmm. ka
0: such and such yep. yeah <laughs>
2: uh, and there's all sorts of ones that say like yippee-ki-yay and things mm-hmm. like that and I, I, I watch it and think who who's watching this? And they they're they're offended by the swearing, but they're all right with people getting shot point blank in the face. Why is mm. and why are we catering for for people who are offended by swearing but are fine with violence? Why is why should there ever be a TV version of this? It's it's strange. I think it's just because there used to be different rules with TV that you're only allowed to say a certain amount of swear words even after the watershed. So. But then, in that case, if they were allowed a certain amount, why UGTA, the most famous line in the film? That's mm.
1: very true. There are—I um, wrote down—I love the Parents Guide on the Internet Movie Database. <laughs> oh yeah, <laughs> and uh, there are 56 uses of the f-bomb. I—I huh. um, I just got to tell you the other things that they've written as the parental guide. So people drink alcohol at a party, and That's there true. are one or two of who are clearly drunk, (laughs) so watch out, kids. And um, several characters smoke cigarettes, naughty, (laughs) and um, cocaine is briefly snorted twice. (laughs) Briefly, Mm -hmm. only briefly. It's very important, but I just I love it. I just love the parents guide because they're so accurate with exactly every single mm. little bit that could possibly be a worry. <laughs> they'll put it in. It's quite sweet, isn't I it? it? I love it. The think idea it's really that endearing.
2: anyone is going to be troubled by alcohol consumption you know, in
1: and they're clearly drunk. It's not
2: just that
1: they're drinking. <laughs> they're clearly drunk.
2: Did they mention people having their kneecap shot off?
1: No. <laughs> that's, and they did mention. That's that's they not... mentioned the blood um, when they mentioned blood and gore. It was because of his feet and the glass. Mm. That's is what that they pointed f- out. Yeah, not oh, not the being shot really in the head, are. none
2: of that. I'm sorry, I, I do I do respect that that people have different views on swearing and everything, but but come on, when you've got that level of violence, <laughs> no. just yipikaiya, just say it. <laughs> Just say it, Paul.
0: <laughs> Just oh, say, no. muddy Funster. Oh, he's gone and done it. <laughs> that's the um, that's the
2: word nominated radio. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> this award
0: nomination has gone to your head. in <laughs> words after the programme. <laughs> <laughs> um, uh, one thing I, I know we d- we always like to uh, examine uh, other actors for the roles, and this is uh, it's always good fun imagining if if they could have done it. I mean, I don't know if you two have seen, but the, the list for this is huge. Um, Turned down the role of John McClane, Arnold Schwarzenegger, Sylvester Stallone, Burt Reynolds, Harrison Ford, Mel Gibson and Richard Gere. Okay? Richard Gere? No. Yeah, Richard, never worked. They were the people who turned the role down. Now, also considered, I mean, when, when you say also considered, I mean, you could say that I was considered. Yeah. <laughs> right, we considered it, no, we said no. Although, you know, I mean, these days I don't look too bad in a vest. Um <laughs> Oh, I consider, just because I'm so old it suits me. Um, also considered Michael Madsen. Um, and that, I mean, this thats a long time ago, isn't it? Before Michael, Michael Madsen, Madsen was on anyone's right. radar, I suppose. But yeah, Don Johnson, John Travolta, uh, Michael Keaton, Alec Baldwin, Gary Oldman, who's he's considered for everything, I think, <laughs> uh,
2: Liam Neeson, and Mickey Rourke. Did no one else hear Frank Sinatra?
1: Yes, I have heard. That. But because... that was when you originally optioned not for this one though.
2: Yeah, because it was they were contractually obliged to offer him it, weren't yeah. they? Because it was <laughs> well it was it was originally what was it? It was from this is something I didn't know before I was researching it for this. That it's based on a novel, yeah, and it's yeah. A, a novel which is a sequel to a film to a novel that was made into a film where yeah. Frank Sinatra played a That's lead the lead role. One? Yeah. So they were contractually obliged to offer him the sequel <laughs> Could as you well.
1: Imagine!
2: <laughs> <out>. <laughs> Singing, I did it but my you, way. He yeah. shoots everybody in the face. Yippee ki yay!
0: Okay, right. Well, I think that's a perfect point. We need to, we're going to take a break now. We're going to uh, remove the, uh, the, the phrase yippee ki from, uh, from Andy's uh, vocabulary somehow. And uh, now later, that very same man, Andy Goulding, is going to be taking a look at some of the best ever movie sequels. And we'll be talking more about Die Hard. And that's all after this short break. Hope you're enjoying the show so far. If you'd like to help us make more, you can do so by visiting our webpage, spoilerpodcast.co.uk, clicking on the donate button and giving whatever you think we're worth. Or you can help us out for free and get yourself an audiobook of your choice into the bargain by signing up for a free 30-day trial with Audible via the link on our website. Audible have the world's largest selection of audiobooks, including Return of the Native by Thomas Hardy, read by Alan Rickman, You can cancel your membership at any time within the 30 days and you won't pay a penny. But you still get to keep your free audiobook. Just go to spoilerpodcast.co.uk and click on the Audible Trial ad on the left hand side. We get a few quid each time someone signs up via our link, which will keep our producer Johnny supplied with tight white vests and ammo. Now, back to the show.
1: Welcome to the party, pal!
0: There we go. Welcome back to Spoiler and uh, where we're reviewing Die Hard 1988. Oh, it's was a long time ago now, isn't it? Oh, now the Die I can't believe I can't. Yaz. Yaz and the Yaz? plastic. Yaz and the plastic population. Uh, the Only Way Is Up uh, was there and I was on my first ever uh, weeks long boys brigade camp away from home.
2: <laughs> I got a barrel. The barrel annual for Christmas, nineteen eighty-eight. <laughs> I always
1: remember
0: that barrel. The barrel. Where was barrel the barrel from? Was she the bees she was or Was from that a beaner?
2: Topper, name? I think. Oh, to- oh. Topper.
0: Of course, Topper. <laughs> enough of that pleasant. Enough of that pleasantries. Let's get back to people shooting at each other in the kneecaps. Um, <laughs> now, the Die Hard franchise is no stranger to sequels, with Bruce Willis donning his increasingly sweaty white vest no less than four further times, to arguably diminishing returns. But. Are movie sequels just a symptom of an industry bankrupt of new ideas and afraid of taking risks? Or can a good sequel actually elevate a film series to new heights? Andy has been finding out. We're doing a sequel. We're back by popular demand. Come on, everybody, strike up the band. We're doing a sequel.
2: The word sequel is guaranteed to set alarm bells ringing in the heads of film fans everywhere. The sequel's never quite as good. Chiefly because we fear this ringing is reflected in the cynical of cash registers and the heads of the movie executives responsible. And yet we still flock to these often cut price follow ups to films we adore because, like a spurned lover looking for a new partner with similar attributes to their ex, we crave to recapture that flush of excitement we experienced the first time around. Sadly, sequels at their worst are either greatest hits compilations transplanted to a different setting, such as Home Alone 2, a film so lazy it just shipped all the original movie's booby traps to New York.
0: Hey, you guys give up? Have you had pain?
2: Or hurriedly slapped together fiascos which don't even manage to re-engage key cast members, like the Keanu-less Speed 2. <laughs> Even reuniting an original cast and crew is no guarantee of recapturing the magic. Nostalgia has clouded many minds to just how feeble Ghostbusters 2 really was. For the most part, sequels tend to be decent continuations of mega-hits, which, by definition... Lack the freshness of their predecessors and spilled just a little too much water while trying to walk the narrow tightrope between the demands of the narrative and the demands of the audience. Die Hard 2 did a fair job by once again trapping John McClane within a confined space.
0: Another basement, another elevator. Look at the same shit happen to the same guy twice?
2: But as the franchise rumbled on and the settings grew more expansive, the series drifted towards more generic and forgettable popcorn fodder. Although my dad still thinks Die Hard 4.0 is one of the greatest films ever made. Likewise, the Lethal Weapon films became less intense as Mel Gibson's Martin Riggs inevitably gained distance from the tragic death of his wife and found comfort in his friendship with Danny Glover's Roger Murtaugh and a new relationship with Rene Russo's Lorna Cohn. By the time of the fourth instalment, he was a tepid weapon at best. I'm
1: too awful for s*** too.
2: But sometimes sequels have defied expectations by either being every bit as good as, or sometimes even better than, the original films that spawned them. The Godfather Part Two is regularly voted as one of the finest films ever made. The Empire Strikes Back and Indiana Jones and the Last Crusade are often hailed as the highlights of their respective franchises, while Aliens has managed to achieve a similar level of acclaim as its predecessor by coming at the same subject matter by way of a different angle and director. For those of us who just can't get enough of a good thing, Here's my list, in no particular order, of five terrific sequels... ...that put paid to the notion of diminishing returns. At number one, we have an early example of a sequel from 1935... ...James Whale's Bride of Frankenstein. Whale directed the original Frankenstein in 1931 and the potential for a follow-up was strong enough that Universal altered the ending to allow Colin Clive's Dr Henry Frankenstein to survive. Though Boris Karloff's iconic monster also appears to die a fiery death at the end of the original film, he too was back for the sequel. Alone. Bad. Friend. Good. Though Whale was resistant to making the film, Producer Carl Lemley Jr. astutely recognised that Whale's participation was as crucial as that of his returning stars and managed to persuade him. Whale had little faith in the film, so he decided to give it a more tongue in cheek flavour, indulging his love of camp humour. To this end, he created another iconic universal monster in the fantastic Elsa Lanchester's Titular Bride, a wide eyed, hissing abomination with striking two tone hair and a thing or two to learn about tactful rejection.
0: She's alive!
2: Despite an intervening four years between Wales' two Frankenstein films, Bride of Frankenstein was an instant hit and is still considered to be one of the finest sequels ever made. Whether it surpasses the original is genuinely too close to call, but suffice it to say, both films are monstrously entertaining. (laughs) At number two is Bill and Ted's Bogus Journey. The sequel to Bill and Ted's Excellent Adventure, Bogus Journey switched directors from Stephen Herrick to Pete Hewitt, but reunited its stars Alex Winter, Keanu Reeves and George Carlin, as well as original writers Chris Matheson and Ed Solomon. Ted? What? I have a feeling we're about to embark upon a most unprecedented expedition. Excellent Adventure was a fun but unoriginal time-trapping comedy in which high school underachievers Bill and Ted assemble a series of historical characters to help them pass their history exam. A less ambitious sequel would have focused once again on time-hopping, but Bogus Journey instead sends the bodacious duo straight to hell when they are thrown off a cliff by evil robot replicas of themselves in order to alter history and prevent their band Wild Stallions from hoping to create a utopian future.
1: Dead? We're
0: dead, dude. No way.
2: This way. Sound needlessly complicated? That's without even mentioning the 15th century princesses, the parody of Bergman's The Seventh Seal, the nightmarish vision of the Easter Bunny, or the alien being with the ability to split himself into identical twins, let alone the fact that the Grim Reaper plays a mean double bass, but is not so great at twisting. You might be a king or a little
0: street sweeper, but sooner or later you dance with the Reaper.
2: (laughs) While some critics felt Bogus Journey lacked the simple, uncluttered charm of its predecessor, Others, myself included, agreed with Roger Ebert that it was the kind of movie where you start out snickering in spite of yourself and end up actually admiring the originality that went into creating this hallucinatory slapstick.
0: I got a full-on robot chubby.
2: At number three is James Cameron's Terminator 2, Judgment Day. I need your clothes, your boots and your motorcycle. In the seven-year interim between these two Terminator films, Cameron had also made another superb sci-fi action sequel with Aliens to follow up to Ridley Scott's 70s classic Alien. But Terminator 2 feels like a more personal work, expanding on the director's own concepts and characters in an ingenious way. While the first Terminator film had been a small, independent production, Terminator 2 was the most expensive film ever made upon its release in 1991. It won numerous awards for its stunning visual effects, makeup, and sound design. But crucially, Terminator 2 was not just a sterile exercise in cinematic one-upmanship. It had a strong storyline, a good cast, and real heart. The latter quality was achieved by the fantastic idea of casting Arnold Schwarzenegger in the role of the good guy, a reprogrammed version of the T-800 model Terminator that had made such a menacing villain in the first installment.
1: Come with me if you want to live.
2: This time, Arnie is the protector of young John Connor, the only hope for the future, who's being hunted down by Robert Patrick's T-1000 model. A sleek, streamlined update of Arnie's outdated, hulking contraption.
0: You gotta listen to the way people talk. You don't say affirmative. You say, no problema. And if someone comes off to you with an attitude, you say, eat me. And if you want to shine them on, it's hasta la vista, baby. Hasta la vista,
2: baby. Terminator 2 understands that audiences would not be satisfied with a mere retread of the cat-and-mouse action of the previous film, and so it delivers on the narrative front, cleverly switching the Terminator's purpose, while not losing any of the single-minded determination or imposing presence that made him so popular with audiences in the first place. they further Terminator films forward, none have come close to this lesson in how to make an action sequel right. No problemo. At number four is Jennifer Yu Nelson's Kung Fu Panda 2. DreamWorks Animation has often been seen as an inferior alternative to Disney and Pixar, and the Shrek and Madagascar franchises seem to bear this out. But among the studio's oft-overlooked pantheon are great films like How to Train Your Dragon, Megamind, and the Kung Fu Panda series.
0: My fist hungers for justice.
2: That was my... Fist. the concept for kung fu panda an overweight panda named poe who trains to become the dragon warrior and protector of the valley of peace sounds unpromising and i admit to initially overlooking the film's considerable charms but when i first watched its sequel with no expectations whatsoever i was blown away by just how hilarious fast-paced and emotionally engaging it was with post-training dispensed with in the first installment Kung Fu Panda 2 is able to launch straight into a quest narrative that makes brilliant use of its characters and ancient Chinese setting. The only reason you're still alive is that I find your stupidity mildly amusing. Well, thank you. But I
0: find your evilness extremely annoying. Who do you think you are, Panda? Who do you think
2: I am, Peacock? (laughs) 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 Not only did Kung Fu Panda 2 surpass the original, it made me go back and watch its predecessor in a whole new light and become immersed in this lovingly created world. Plus, what film wouldn't be improved by dropping in the psychotic, kung-fu-hating peacock voiced by Gary Oldman? (laughs) Why are we laughing?
1: Start spreading the news
2: Finally, at number five, we have Joe Dante's Gremlins 2, The New Batch. Following the success of Dante's original Gremlins film, Warner Brothers pushed for a sequel, but Dante declined, having always envisaged Gremlins as a standalone piece. But when he was offered the unprecedented perk of complete creative control, as well as a budget three times that of his previous film, Dante was tempted back. Not wanting to sully the memory of his affectionate B-movie tribute, Dante came up with the idea of making Gremlins 2 a satire on the first film, as well as on the concept of sequels in general. To this end, he created a bulging, anarchic, cartoonish blast of a picture, which riffs on scenes from the original film with self-referential glee. After
0: their bizarre, blood-curdling rampage of destruction,
2: these strange creatures now appear to be mounting what seems to be a musical number. Dante packs the film to bursting with movie references, celebrity cameos, animated sequences featuring Looney Tunes characters and a 4th wall breaking moment in which the gremlins take over the film projector. Gremlins, in this theatre, now... Critic Leonard Moulton, who hated the first Gremlins film, even makes an appearance in which he gives a damning review of the Gremlins home video, only to be set upon by its monstrous stars. Now I know some people found this movie fun, but me, I'd rather spend two hours having root canal work done. What's fun about a movie full of ugly, slimy, mean-spirited, gloppy little monsters who run amok and attack innocent people? Our moviegoers are so desperate for entertainment that this kind of trash and
1: has fun... Whoa, whoa,
2: wait, a oh, wait a minute! Just kidding! They received mixed reviews from baffled critics. In many ways, Gremlins 2 is the ultimate sequel in that it has its cake and eats it. It gives audiences a bigger, more outlandish version of the source material, while also berating them for fueling the demand for such watered-down spectacles in the first place. As a lover of cinema, I'm willing to take these lumps, but I'm also willing to feed like a wild animal at the trough. Because every so often, amongst the swill, there's the promise of snuffling out a truffle.
0: Andy, thanks for that, as always. Now, for the record, uh, and you know I'm a fellow appreciator of lists, I'm going to put in my top five of your ever best writings amongst the swill that there's the promise of a snuffling out a truffle. <laughs> <laughs> Which I know you said better than I just did, but it's, it's really, I'm gonna, I've am going i been trying to, since I have, <laughs> since I read that on the email that it came over on, I've been trying to find a way of bringing that into everyday conversation. <laughs> <laughs> Not a bit of it, you've really got to choose it. But um, let's pick you up on that. Ghostbusters too feeble.
2: <laughs> I think so. What? I think
0: so. Come on. Uh,
2: I, I, I used I used to enjoy it, but now going back to it, you really, that thing where they walk the Statue of Liberty into the it's rubbish. <laughs> mm. It's it, it, the Statue of Liberty when they walk, isn't it? Like like far too small. It is far too small, uh, and they control it with one of those Nintendo power like joysticks don't they from the era but it's
0: powered by ghosts I think you've, you've missed the reality part <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> I mean,
2: watch it again watch it again but th- no, no, right. this
0: is it I've actually written this down I said and this, this is how clever I think you are <laughs> right knowing knowing that I don't like recommendations and don't act on recommendations I think you put that in there to get me to disagree with you and then go and watch it again oh uh, well sneaky Right. Okay. So I want to talk a little bit about how I watch this film, and I, I, you know, I'm a bit peculiar. I can watch things in dribs and drabs. You know, I've become used to this over the years for for various reasons. And I thought, well, what I think, like you, Rachel, you know, because I feel like I'm so familiar with this film. I thought, well, I'll just stick it on in the background, do something. And I was I was preparing tea, cooking, or something, something like that. And it got to the point where, and it wasn't the first bit where Alan Rickman comes in because he's just walking around a lobby. That's kind of not, you know, neither in nor there. When he opens his little book on the steps and there's gunfire gone off and stuff like that, and he's got everyone's attention and his body movement. And at that point then, I knew that I had to watch Alan Rickman, be Alan Rickman or, you know, the hands Hans Grimm. Or, but really, you know, we're, we're soaking up Alan Rickman every little bit we can of him these days. And I just thought, No, Right. Turn that off. Stick on a podcast or the radio instead while <laughs> you're doing your tea and come back to this later, because you need to watch this character. You can't you, you can't you can't listen to him. Um, and, I mean, really, he, he outshines everyone, doesn't he? I mean, he, he, I'm sure you read the same things as I did in prep for this. You know, he's been in Hollywood like four days or something like that. And he, he gets this part, doesn't want to do it. And it's funny, Rachel, because actually I, mean, I, I made a note here that, you know, from what you were saying earlier about the uh, the, the, the black characters in, in there, you know, you think they were pretty stereotyped uh, in, in there. It means actually he, he sort of read the script and said that he thought that every uh, the uh, the, uh, the black characters had a, a positive outcome you know well I'll, mm. I'll, I'll do take your point on the limo driver though um you know so they, they were positive and they were intelligent and you know that's that's one of the reasons that he, that's one of the reasons he took it but yeah i mean he's fantastic isn't
1: he oh God, <laughs> abs- just wonderful i think this is i think he and bruce actually i'll take you to task on bruce because i think he's got something i don't know what it is <laughs> i can't oh no it. no he's good but he's yeah. good. he's got something and for me here's the reason that when you start watching it turgid as that star is you will keep watching it because he's interesting he's doing some funny things with his mouth he has a very strange little pout that he does but he's he's so charismatic and you do watch him and then he's joined by alan rittman and you think oh this is going to be good and that's what makes die hard the film that it is it's nothing to do with the set pieces with the dialogue with the rest of the acting it's to do with those two people and they just elevate it to a place that it really probably shouldn't have deserved hmm. but it does because of them Alan Rickman, yes, when he opens that book, and he doesn't even read anything out of it, I don't know what it's for, but he just <laughs> gets like a, a little book out, is and it you a think, book or a file you're, you're about to be all... schooled. And it's just, <laughs> yeah. oh, you just think, yes, this is so fantastic. Look at and my... and you just it just makes you miss him even more. Yeah. But it's just fantastic. Every single scene he's in, you cannot take your eyes away from the screen. He's just wonderful.
2: Yeah. Well, I read a great quote from uh, Stephen E. De D'Souza who, who uh, wrote the script for Die Hard. And he said that he wrote it as if uh, Hans Gruber was the protagonist, not John McLean. And uh, the quote he said was, uh, if he had not planned the robbery and put it together, Bruce Willis would have just gone to the party and reconciled or not with his wife. You should sometimes think about looking at your movie through the point of view of the villain who's really driving the narrative. And this is something that I think, for me, this is what makes Die Hard. And I should say at this point that I do think Die Hard is a brilliant film in in many ways, in terms of outright entertainment and rewatchability. I mean, I, I sit down and I flip channels and Die Hard is on. I'll go in at any time and I'll usually watch it to the end. I've got a, quite a few sort of ideological problems with it, which I'll get to later because they come in at the end mostly. <laughs> uh, but like, I think it's, it's really different from a lot of other action films. I mean, I know we talked about... We've called it turgid, but that that build-up, I think, works well for me. And I think it's got a great concept and a great structure, which really kind of differentiates it from other action films. I mean, the the concept of containing the action within one location really works for me. And this is why I wasn't as keen. I, I did feel it was diminishing returns with the sequels. I mean, it's been a long time since I saw it, but I wasn't actually that keen on Die Hard with a Vengeance. Because as it open as they open out the sort of area that's across it, it becomes more generic for me, whereas having it in that one building, which is something they are unable to sustain in the sequels, but works really well. Remember we talked about the Breakfast Club, another Breakfast Club link, uh, and how they originally planned to do that as a series of films that would follow the characters at sort of five-year intervals. And I always thought they couldn't have done that because what works for the Breakfast Club is containing them in that place where things can really go off in that one small environment and you couldn't keep putting them back in there. It'd be too artificial. And, and for Paul, me that's Paul
1: Gleason's unable to control them again. Yeah, yeah exactly.
2: <laughs> well, for me, it feels like Paul Gleason. it feels like this is Dean Vernon having been sacked from his educational yeah. role yeah. strolling into <laughs> his next and making just as big a hash of it as, as anything <laughs> else. He was
0: the deputy in this, wasn't he? I mean, so where was the chief? He's on holiday. Know,
2: this was a, a big deal, Christmas
0: right? Holiday, yeah. so. a, a Christmas holiday.
1: Which brings me to something else. This is where I have problems with Die Hard. It's not in... Uh, I agree. I think it's a really good premise, this idea of having it in one place. Yeah. And, and Alan Ritman is completely right. The black characters are positive. Um, but there are things like, for example... So he gets through to an emergency call operator, right? Yeah. And he's going, we have problems, <laughs> we have problems. She immediately doesn't believe him. <laughs> Where does that come from? Where in the guidebook does it say, if you receive an emergency call from an unusual source, just Im- immediately imagine it's a hoax because it's bound to be. And then she hears gunfire. That doesn't alert her either. She goes, oh, it's clearly a hoax. <laughs> it's
2: people pulling crackers. Like, it's Christmas.
1: The- I'm like, oh, my goodness. And then I, I do love, and it's crazy, the reaction of um, Al. When the body falls on the bonnet of his car, <laughs> and his, his immediate reaction is just to keep backing out until he like crashes, and like just stop what you're doing. But oh god, it was so funny, and I thought I shouldn't be laughing at this, but I'm laughing. My, oh, it's hilarious. Well,
2: I, I think the body on the car scene is supposed to be a bit of a I really dark hope it is. comic moment, mm-hmm. isn't it? Yeah. But I, I agree with you in that. Like, I think there's a real kind of inverse snobbery in Die Hard about uh, people who work from behind desks. Mm. I mean, th- I think it, when uh, when John McClane is talking to Alan and he says, oh, you must have been out on the street at some time. You, you're not the kind of cop who works from behind a desk. I'm thinking, what the hell is wrong with being a cop who works <laughs> from behind exactly. a desk? And uh, I think it's the same with, like, so when all the other people like Paul Gleason turn up and then the FBI guys turn up or even... They're even more ridiculous with their helicopter and everything, and it, it's it's like they're saying it, it, only the this lone man on the street can really make a difference, yeah. and that really bugs me every time.
0: Yeah, I mean, I, I wrote a note here just saying, "How about the FBI guys? Very odd." <laughs>
1: <laughs> I think that's all you need to say. Isn't it? What
0: <laughs> bonkers! I mean, and there is that that section of the film, and I think I think Rodger Ebert picks picks up on this really quite quite well at the, at the time when he wrote it. Just that there is this section that it really sort of slows down in. um, And it is this sort of conversation back and forth over the walkie-talkie, which actually he wasn't using his hands to operate. You know, when he's picking the glass Mm. out of his feet, I think, well... Now, even if you had the, the button tape down where you're in an office, you know, sellotape bit of rolled by, okay, that's fine. But when you press that down, that means you can't hear the other person on the internet. Now, we, I know we're being picky. We're being very, very picky because, you know, I, I think overall we all enjoyed this, didn't we? However, it really did slow down. And whether it's the FBI FBI guys just turn up and being nuts um, and whether it's the conversation between him and Al. And there's someone did did mention this on the internet saying that Bruce Willis was shooting this and moonlighting at the same time. And they put the, apparently they, they sort of had this section in because because Bruce Willis was exhausted, you know, he was just coming yeah. so that they, they put a lot of dia- dialogue in there. and Let's face it, this is not, uh, uh, it goes there, for, for, for dialogue. And in fact, you know, I, I quite often refer to my notes, but I, I enjoy writing these. <laughs> and I just, you can see here, I've just got at the top here, it says plot, stroke, dialogue, and nothing after it. And <laughs> that, 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 at the time, I thought to myself, well, I'm sure and, Andy or Rachel talk about that if I just bring it up, right? <laughs> But actually, I mean that that what I've written there says it all because yeah. you know it's, it's okay, right? Fair enough. However, the, some of the stunts in this, and you know, if you're all right, over the top. And, and my wife saw him jump over off off the edge there with the with the the fire hose and you thought, oh, she said that's that won't happen. Okay, right, no 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 it would. But the the stuff in the in the lift shaft, for example, mm. is very, very tense. Yes yeah, great. And really edge of the edge of the seat stuff, yeah. you know, I mean I, and, and and really good. And I, I think probably, you know, reasonable I I was about to say pioneering, but I think I'm over egging the pudding a bit there.
2: I don't think it probably is.
1: Mm, very slightly. Yeah. I don't know. Have been, I'm sure there's been, 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 been stuff the like that before. I think
2: it was quite spectacular. I'm, I'm struggling <laughs> right. to think of action films that were quite this spectacular before yeah. Die Hard. I think it, it was part of why it made such an impact. Mm. But I mean, there were there were big action films. Aliens came before this, didn't it? Yes. Yeah. And that, that was, a, well. that was a, a big deal and had a... Mm. Uh, and is probably a better film, actually. Mm. but I
1: think maybe Bruce Willis is one of the first action heroes to actually look like he could do all that stuff. And to get really dirty yeah. and really bloodied up. And he remains bloodied up and he remains dirty. Because so often in films before this, they'd do this huge action sequence mm-hmm. and they'd be almost pristine. And it's like, what? But he didn't mind looking scruffy and... yeah. Bloody and filthy, quite frankly. <laughs> like whenever yeah. Bonnie goes to kiss him at the end of the film, I'm like, ooh, he's a bit sweaty. I want to kiss him.
2: Yeah. yeah, get yourself cleaned up. Yeah, it.
1: just go have a shower or something. <laughs>
2: <Yeah>. <laughs> but I like this this thing about Bruce Willis's shooting schedule. I think that this really helped the film because the the structure of it. I like that it takes in these multiple viewpoints, so it does favour. John McLean and Hans Gruber, but then it goes off for long periods of time to like reporters and cops and other people. And it gives it a more kind of uh, rounded view. It's not just I mean, it seems it seems in the uh, the ca- the advertising campaign and everything that we're really pushing this one guy against the odds thing. But it, it does it does show like the 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 bigger kind of implications. I know, like, pretty much everyone else that affects outside the building appears to be a complete idiot. (laughs) But it's. it's Apart from Al. Apart from from Al. Al. Although, I mean, he shot a kid because he had a Ray gun. He's not that. (laughs) He's not that bright, is yeah. he? <laughs> yeah. But he
1: redeems himself by shooting that blonde guy. Oh yeah.
2: Well, we're, we're going to get to this later because this is Apparently. one of my issues. Okay. Well, <laughs> well we're on it. we're on it now. Why not dive in? Okay. Okay. Well, uh, yeah. Most of the things that I have serious issues with in Die Hard happen at the end. Mm. I hate this thing about him having shot this kid with a ray gun. I mean, we <laughs> we we get this <laughs> we get this this one. He, he doesn't even really go into it. He just says uh, he had a ray gun. It seemed real enough to me, so I shot him. And you, you're like, well, that doesn't, that doesn't exonerate you. It, you. We don't get enough information about this to know whether whether he's... I mean, Bruce Lewis is like, yeah, you should be on the street, man. No, you shouldn't. You're going to shoot a kid. Uh, he's, <laughs> he, he doesn't have any information about this. And yet he says, I haven't fired my gun since then. And this is, is taken as a bad thing. So we get this thing tacked on at the end this like, blatantly Freudian image that lingers on this gun as he shoots this man. And it's like, yes, now he's got his manhood back because he's, he shot a full-grown man instead of a child. Mm. There's, I don't think it needed... I, I like the idea of Al and this constant communication between them. I don't think we need this little dramatic angle for him. Keep him as kind of a light character. and I mean, people have suggested that when he comes out of the building, and, you know, when he sees him and they realise they are and they go up and they hug each other that it's, it's almost like a romantic moment. And so they needed, they put that bit in where he shoots someone just to go, oh, no, wait, it's all right. It's not, it's not mushy. Look, he can, he can be a man as well. And that, that really, that mm. really annoys me.
1: Oh, I totally agree with that. I, I thought it was a lovely bromance moment. I think but you're both, just... I
2: think you're, sorry to interrupt, I
0: think you're both missing the point. How did that guy get down from the chains in the first place <laughs> <first laughs> in Very order to point. bring his gun out and be shot at <laughs>
1: He is a bit special, that guy, though. There's one of my favourite lol moments, and I've actually put it down here. <laughs> Somebody says we're... There's the blonde guy. I can't remember his name. Is it Carl or something? Somebody says, we're back in business, and the music goes, bam and the guy's <laughs> head swishes in time with the bam and his blonde hair flows like a, hair, like a shampoo <laughs> advert. I'm like, I love this guy. I don't even care that he's evil.
0: So, I mean, we talk about the ending there as well. I mean, I, you're all right, we're being nitpicky, aren't we? But I'm going to go for it still. <laughs> um... And this, I don't think this is just with this. This is with every film like this. Is, is the fact that, right, Gruber's got the upper hand, right? He's got hold of Holly and Bruce Willis has lost his, he's put his gun down, his head's, you know, he's, he's holding his hands behind his back and he starts lad like, doing that silly laugh. <laughs> he's got $640 million in bearer bonds, whatever they are. <laughs> okay, bearer bonds. And why didn't he just shoot him? I
1: don't
0: know. It's, it's the same old thing with a Bond villain, isn't it? You know, but, you know, it, it's... Mm. If I'm ever in that situation yeah. and it's becoming increasingly likely, <laughs> I'm just going <laughs> shoot to the, shoot the guy and get, and, and get on with my 600 what would you do with a bearer bond?
1: I, if I knew what one was, I could probably <laughs> tell <Yeah>.
0: you. <laughs> he
2: seems to think they can go to a beach and sip uh, cocktails with them. <laughs> <laughs> Ooh, it sounds like fun.
0: So the ending, I mean, was everyone that... You,
2: well, you, we're all dithering about the ending, aren't mm. well, I, mean. I have one <laughs> other oh. oh, like, strong problem with the ending. Well, like
1: strong problems from Andy. Go it's on. It's
2: the symbolism of the watch that Holly receives. Did anyone pick up on this? Oh, here we go. Holly no. receives a Rolex watch oh, yes. earlier in the film... It's said that it's been given to her because she's that good at her job. And then as Gruber falls from the building at the end, he grabs the watch. And then John McClane comes and takes it off and he falls to his death. And to me, this feels like he's unshackling her from her career he's like mm. he's the man i mean she's she's been the strong woman all the way through right at the end she suddenly is in the damsel in distress role and then he comes he unshackles her from her career with this watch and then immediately she's yes i'm uh, holly mclean a lot of people online have said which is also a good reason of it that uh, the watch represents kind of capitalist evil, and because it's this this big vulgar gold thing, and it's a condemnation of Reaganomics, and it was a real kind of a attack on the the era. But uh, but it, there's just something about the, the fact that it's it's him who comes and and literally like takes the shackles off her to make him fall to her death. I also think that at this point it's the one moment where it would have been better if uh, Arnold Schwarzenegger had played the role because at this point. <laughs> when he when he takes the Rolex off and Gruber falls to his death, he could have gone, not on my watch.
1: And <laughs> oh. <laughs> he'd have delivered that beauty all, <laughs> all, all that
2: for that gag. I mean, I'm going
0: to have to be the voice of reason here. I mean. The voice of reason. Just say, well, I mean, would you prefer to keep hold of the watch but then it'd be on her arm and she'd fall down with him? i, I mean, prefer the on. watch
2: wasn't there at all. i prefer he prefer he's just gone. The watch has got to be there for a reason. I think... I admire Diard's ambition in putting some symbolism in there, mm. but I think probably the the capitalist angle was what they were going for. But I think subconsciously, this thing has crept in where the woman has to be at the end just revert to damsel saved and then go off together with the man.
1: But so doesn't just thinking about this, I've never thought about the angle that you've just talked about. So I'm I'm just thinking on the hoof a little bit here, but. She punches him in the nose. Yeah, is that not her reasserting her feminine strength? There is that. Yeah, strength? yeah. I mean, I don't,
2: I don't think, I don't think at all that that Holly completely loses a position as a strong woman in this at all. But maybe I'm reading too much into it. But it's just a little bit of a niggle for me. Well, I'm going to chair this and say yes, you are. Um, <laughs> no,
0: I mean, as we, as we talk about the, the, the Rickman <coughs> drop, my favourite bit of, of trivia that were picked up on IMDb, and there was a lot for this. I mean, you can waste. Well, I did. I wasted a, a, nearly a day <laughs> <laughs> uh, looking through this, um, but my, my I think my favourite was the fact that when uh, when they dropped Rickman uh, uh, playing uh, Hans Gruber uh, at the end of it, they dropped him twenty one feet onto a giant airbag. Uh, but the stuntman who dropped him dropped him on the count of two, not three, to get the
2: right reaction. <laughs> <laughs> so harsh! <laughs> Do that, Daniel <to laughs> Rickman. I know. <laughs> Uh, one one thing I want, was wondering about, this, talking about the sequels, was this one of the first examples of where not like not all the sequels were just called two, three, four because it was Die Hard two, but then it was Die Hard with a Vengeance, wasn't it? Yeah, and then four point oh. Yeah, it, it was four point But in in North America, I think it was called something like Live Fast, Die Hard, mm. and then the fifth one was called A Good Day to Die Hard, and uh, that's that's the thing that I don't like. I like the sequels to just be numbered just cuz it, it's annoying for me I've, <laughs> I've i've never seen i've never seen a jason bourne film what? in my life really and yeah and that's because i wait till they were they were coming on telly and then i look at it and i think is this the first? It's right. The born supremacy. Does that come after the born identity and before like the born midwifery or whatever <laughs> it is? And I, I can't put them in order. Okay, so when we leave
0: internet, well, I'll write. I'll look on the internet. I'll write a list for you, and then all you need to do is tune into ITV2 anytime, any yeah. point. Uh, <laughs> one of them will be playing. You can watch well, them in all.
2: I way. won't be rushing today. I'm not a big action film fan, really. So. Born. I'm, I'm not in no rush to see it early. Okay, well, unless just, we do uh, it for this, Born just, Identity just is worth a, a watch. Just making a note here, Series Six. <laughs> <laughs>
0: can make candy watch Born film. Series Six is that the
2: one where <laughs> no. we're doing Singing in the Rain as well, Paul? No. Uh, <laughs> right. Okay. Right. So
0: I think we've uh, we've wound up on that, and we need to get to our rating. Um, now then, is this six hundred and forty million dollars in bearer bonds? <laughs> Or is it six pounds forty in a postal order? <laughs> uh, so it's a postal. Is it a postal order? I mean, the thing is, I mean, it's somewhere in between. Anyway,
2: what, Andy, what do you um, think? Well, I'm going to say it, it's the bearer bonds because I think it's it's something that I would I like to have, but I'm not entirely sure I get it.
1: Yeah, I agree with you on that one. <laughs> and even though I don't know what the heck a bearer bond
2: is I think I'm gonna buy
0: the whole team a one dollar bearer bond. Oh. Yeah. And uh, in It's all will In in wait well, it's all I've got. <laughs> uh in in something or other. But uh, but coming back to the bearer bonds, and this is this is it, I'm gonna put my final uh final mark on it. The bearer bonds well, one thing you didn't pick up on, Rachel, is that the bearer bonds flying through the air at the end was symbolically like snow coming down so this Ah, is What Do You Know a Christmas film film. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, so Merry Christmas everyone (laughs) Uh, thank you very much for listening and uh, thank you to our producer uh, Johnny thank you Rachel thank you Andy Uh, and as talking of Andy let's leave you now with one of his genial poems
2: Some years ago in Lincoln I recall there used to be a hairdresser's called Die Hard but with Die spoke D-Y-E In the same town at the same time was a barber's called Blade Runners. It seemed that Lincoln's stylists were all action movie punners. The truth is, both these businesses were owned by just one person, and with each shop he opened up, the names began to worsen. He named the next place Brush Hour, just marginally deplorable, compared with Permanator 2, this time it's tonsorial. For ageing punks, he started up The Last of the Mohicans, but these punning names drove customers away like Vile Beacons. So Braiders of the Lost Ark hit an instant losing streak, and his three Lord of the Ringlet shops closed down within a week. The problem was, in Britain, the most buttoned up of nations, his customers did not like the aggressive implications. By forcing folk to view his skills through such a bloodstained prism, the barber had aligned himself with large-scale barbarism. Hence, when they sat down in his chair, they feared, with palms all sweaty, a bullet in their mullet or a crew cut by machete... And so he moved to Hollywood, his spiritual home, set up a shop called Quiffhanger in praise of Sliced Alone, where now he trims the locks of Ridley Scott and Michael Bay and turns out new director's cuts with every passing day.
0: You've been listening to Spoiler, hosted by me, Paul Tyler, with Andy Goulding and Rachel Burnett. Our theme music was composed by Ron Butcher. If you've enjoyed the show and would like to support us, you can do so via our website, spoilerpodcast.co.uk. Click on the donate button and give us whatever you think we're worth. You can also sign up for a free 30-day trial with Audible and get yourself a free audiobook by going to spoilerpodcast.co.uk and clicking on the Audible trial banner on the left-hand side. Or you can help us by simply telling your friends about us, sharing links to our show or writing a nice review on iTunes. Next time on Spoiler, we're spying on Jim Carrey, in The Truman Show.
1: Somebody help me! I'm being spontaneous!
0: If you'd like to get in touch with us, you can email hello at spoilerpodcast.co.uk. Find us on Twitter or Facebook, or go to our website, spoilerpodcast.co.uk. Spoiler is produced by Johnny Hoare and is a Joe Schmo production. The show is recorded at the studios of Siren FM in the heart of the beautiful cathedral city of Lincoln. all things being equal. I'd rather be in Philadelphia.
1: We want to say Merry Christmas and Happy New Year! What was it you said to me before? Yippee Kaye.
0: Muddy Funster.